Good morning. Glad to be here this morning. Uh, I really did enjoy my last time here. And so um, I'm just looking forward to sharing some things. And I feel like before I get started, I need to say where the message is coming from. One of my things whenever I, I do deliver a message is most times I'm talking to myself with the hopes that maybe some of it resonates with you. And so this morning, if you hear anything, hear my heart of where I'm wrestling with the Lord a little bit on, on some specific things. What I've heard from him, maybe even some places, actually some places where I'll have to confess to y'all where I'm not doing a great job being a follower. And so maybe that helps and, and speaks to you as well this morning. So uh, again, just excited to be here. This morning we're going to look at two passages. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 through 12, and then we'll flip over to Luke 14, verse 20, verses 25 through 33. I'm going to start with reading um, in 1 Corinthians. This is verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. It's important as we look at this to understand the context of which Paul is writing. I used to be a history teacher, so I like to give lots of background about things. But this book was written in 56 A.D., and almost all of Jesus' apostles who walked with him and prayed with him and saw the things that he did in person with their own eyes, almost every one of them are still alive. So we're looking immediately following the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Division starts to make its way into the church. I do it this way, I do it this way, I heard it this way. And division comes in and becomes the, such a point that Paul has to address this specific, specifically in the Corinthian church. He has to acknowledge that, look, you have all this stuff, but what you're missing is the message. And unfortunately, this message of division has been a part of the church since this first, this first, these first churches. I shared a, a, a while ago about or when I was here last time. I grew up in a very, very small town in Kentucky. We had a stop sign, one. We had a bank, one. Sometimes it was open and sometimes you had money there, but not often. It was as small as you could. I went to high school. My graduating class was with 44 of us. I didn't finish last, but it was close. But the point, it's super small. And I grew up at a very creatively named church called Second Baptist Church. Because First Baptist changed the carpet when I was young. And some people got angry because it was kind of a pinkish color. And everybody, not everybody, a lot of people left. And they went down the street one half mile and planted Second Baptist Church. And it exploded. We had 10 and 20 people coming. <laughs> and we had to expand. We had a small building. Couldn't hold all these droves of people that were coming in. And so we had to expand. Well, then there was an argument about that. And then three miles down the road, Third Baptist Church popped up. Because the building wasn't built the right way. 
And we argue. They are. I remember my dad was a deacon at the church all the time at that time, and he would come home and tell me tell us about the arguments. And I was just like, I hate church. So in my small town, in the county I grew up in, of less than 3,000 people, today, right now, there are 28 just Southern Baptist churches. That does not count the two Methodist churches, the Presbyterian church, the loads of community Pentecostal churches, and the new non-denominational church that are there. So they are definitely churched people. It's like a buffet. You just pick the one that fits best at the time, and you pick the church. That's the church that you go to. And then you compete intently, because there's only like 30 people. So you've got to compete really hard to get people to come in so that, so that they'll give and pay the bills. And, and you, you hope you don't make a decision like putting in an air conditioner or not putting in an air conditioner in a kid's room that will split the church in half. But the church has had this thing since forever about making it, the people going and making church in their image instead of acknowledging that what we're really at church for. See, church is about this place of connecting to the heart of Jesus and that alone and recognizing our primary allegiance there. Not to the church, but to Jesus. And we don't have to split over carpet color if we're submitted to him. And so this morning I thought... What we could do, because this is what I'm wrestling with quite a bit, is what does it look like to be completely submitted? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus completely and totally connected to him? So the passage that I feel like the Lord laid on my heart is in Luke 14. It's verses 25 through 33. Y'all may know this passage. This is the cost of discipleship passage. You'll probably have some questions that Steve can answer about Jesus telling us to hate people, but that's his, it's above my pay grade. But to give us the context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We're towards the end of his ministry. He's making his way towards Jerusalem, and he's having these encounters along the road. And before we get to where he addresses this large crowd, he has this real intimate gathering with a lot of the Pharisees in the area. And they're asking him questions about the kingdom of heaven. And he gives them this parable about a banquet, how this guy, this rich man invites all of his important people in his town to come to the banquet for this wedding feast. And nobody comes and he gets angry. And so he sends them out and says, go get all the other people. Bring them in. The people on the road, the people in the fields, the servants, invite them into this place because these other people didn't think that my gathering was important enough. And he's, 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 he's explaining to the Pharisees, your name, your power, and your position, that's not good enough. There's not enough resources there for you to come into this kingdom. So the scene changes, and he starts addressing this large crowd. Let me read this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down, estimate the cost to see if you can have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. 
In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. So the scene changes. Pharisees, these people who think they do it all right, to this large crowd. These people who were uninvited guests in the, in the previous parable are now receiving the message. And the thought for us is, well, these are the people Jesus is going to bring in. But if you look back at, at chapter 13 in Luke, Jesus actually acknowledges that even those folks won't say yes to the invitation. Because they're not willing to give their primary allegiance to Jesus. The weird word allegiance is one we don't use often in, in our language. The, probably the most, uh, the most often we use it is at school when we pledge allegiance to the flag. That's how we use that word. But that's not, Jesus is not asking people simply to believe that he is the son of God. He's asking people to give their allegiance, their heart, their body, all of them to him. That's why he uses this phrase, this ancient Hebrew idiom of hate your father and mother, hate your wife and children. He's not telling anyone to hate. He's using it the same way that when Jacob talks about his wives, Leah and Rachel, that he loved Rachel, he hated Leah. It's that he, his primary allegiance was to Rachel. And so his interaction with Leah, although he loved her, it was secondary to Rachel. And that's what Jesus is telling these people about their families. Your primary allegiance is to me. It may look like you hate your mother and your father. When your primary allegiance is to me, it may look in comparison that you hate your wife and children. What he's simply saying, though, is follow me. To a culture whose family name and genealogy is the most important thing about you. That's your identity, right? That's why you have all the begots and the ancestries that y'all skip over when you're reading the Bible. That's why they're all in there. It's because it gives you importance to know who your father was and what he did. And it gives them importance. And you keep tracing it back. You did the job your dad did. And that name, son of whoever was important to who your identity is. And Jesus is saying, your identity is me and only me. Those people are great. Love them. They're important. Love them. But your allegiance is to me. And it changes everything. It changes the, 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 the mindset. Because people at the time, they're not willing to give that up because then they lose their status in society. Or then they lose their influence. All of the clout that their family name has built up over the centuries is just thrown away. And now I'm submitting everything I have to this man who is walking, I don't know at the time, walking towards death on a cross for me. It changes the entire perspective on identity. But he he encouraged them, don't consider this lightly. I think that whenever we look at Jesus and we decide that we're going to fight, when we consider the cost and we recognize the proper cost, carpet color doesn't matter. When we consider the cost, building size, building construction, none of that matters because he's worth all of it. And that's what he's telling these guys. Don't say yes to Jesus if you're not willing to count the cost of following him. Don't build a tower. If you don't have the resources, 
Don't go to war if you can't win. It's this recognition that the resources that you think are important that you have, they're not sufficient to follow him. Bible knowledge is awesome, but it's not sufficient to follow him because relationship and submission is what's sufficient. He enlightens the scriptures to help us grow in that for us. But following him and being in relationship with him is the only thing that matters. Verse 33, this is my, I'm going to read this again just because I think it's really important. It says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. This isn't an addition to the passage. This is the summation of the passage. This is all of it all together. This is the characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus is to give up all things all the time in order to be in relationship with him. And that is so counter American culture. It is the opposite of everything we believe. We grab, we take, we hoard things because they're mine and they're ours. And we don't give and we don't acknowledge that following him may cost me everything. It's hard, but it's also better. Quick story. Most of you have heard the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Peru. He went to seminary, and after two years of being there, he left as a young man and he, with his wife, and he goes to Peru with this one mission in mind, and that was to share the gospel with some of these unreached aggressive, violent tribes that lived along the Amazon River. So he goes to Peru, and for weeks he can't, nothing happens. He meets up with four other guys. One of the guys happens to be a pilot, and they fly out over the Amazon jungle. They locate this tribe. They land their plane, and they meet three of them, a man and two women. And they just establish relationship with them, right? They're hanging out with them. They actually take them up in the plane and let them look around. They have a great day with these three tribe members to the point where they set up a time to come back. And so they go back and they tell everybody about what happened and are really excited. They come back to the tribe. And what I didn't realize is this tribe, these three folks had lied to everybody else. And when they landed the plane, they ambushed them and killed Jim and his four friends. And when we embrace Jesus, that's the cost of discipleship. It could cost us our life. But the part of that story that doesn't get told enough is what his wife does. She has a young baby, and she stays in Peru after her husband dies. She meets a woman from this tribe who has, who has escaped the tribe, and she learns the language. And then she goes, and she moves in and lives with this tribe for two years. And she forgives them for murdering her husband and her friends. That may cost more than actually dying is to acknowledge that we forgive. This whole tribe accepts Jesus because of this woman's willingness to forgive them for this murder, and she embraces them, and she stays two years and loves them, and then more and more people come and teach them in the gospel, and after two years she leaves, but they recognize that she was the one that showed them what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. She gave up her revenge. She gave up her hate. She gave up her anger. In order to love people radically in a way that nobody else has seen. So the question that I have to ask myself from all of this, 
What's my allegiance to? And the crazy thing about when we check those things of allegiances, they, they're not always sin. Could be. But sometimes our allegiances can be good things. Sometimes they could be. Like for me, where I struggle is with my children. I got four boys under 12. I spent eight and a half hours at football games yesterday. And I struggle with anything that might look like hate towards them. A lot of the time, my children become my primary allegiance. And what happens is I hold back from the Lord because of that. I got plans for them. They got to go to college. They got to do this. They got to do this. And what if God says, nope, they got to go to Peru. Not willing to give that up yet. I want to. But what I realize is that because my allegiance is divided, there are things that I hold back from God. There's things that I'm not willing to give him. And there's things that I, quite honestly, that I lie to him about. And when I was thinking about that, it reminded me of the story in Acts. I'm not going to read the story. I'm going to summarize it. In Acts 5 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Y'all know the story? It's the one that we never preach about because it's too uncomfortable. Ananias and Sapphira, they have this plot of land, they sell the land, they get this money, and they take whole pack part of it intentionally for themselves, and they bring the rest of it, and they give it to Peter, and Peter's like, is that all of it? And Ananias is like, yeah, that's all of it. And Peter says, you're lying. Boom, he's dead. Some guys come and pick him up and carry him out. His wife comes up later. She doesn't know what's happened to Ananias, and Peter says, is this, is this all of it? And she knew the plot. She knew that they were lying, and she said, yes, anyway. And Peter says, the feet of the guys who carried your husband's body away are on their way to get you. And she falls over dead, just like that. We usually stop there, because there's a break in the Bible, right? It's like a new paragraph. Immediately following that story, it says that all that the fear and trembling, fear and trembling was experienced by the church, but... The disciples were still preaching every day in the temple, and everybody held him in great esteem and great honor, but no one joined them because of fear of the Lord. And then it says, yet God still added to their number. See, when we hold back, there's this distance between us and the Lord. And every time I've told this story, I've preached something on this, everyone's asked me every time, why did God do something like that? Why did God strike them dead? This is not Old Testament. This is post the resurrection. Why did God do these things? And that's a question I've asked for a long time. But I started asking the Lord, just praying about this, like, what is this? What is new about the story that I'm missing? And I felt like the Lord said, you're asking the wrong question. I think the question is, is why isn't God still doing this? And I asked him that question, and I hated the answer even more. Because the answer is, I think he'd have to kill all of us. Because we all hold something back. We're all not willing to give over everything and be completely and totally devoted. Now, he provides a way, right? He doesn't expect us to be there yet. There's sanctification that happens as we enter in relationship and he draws us closer to him and he refines us and builds us more into his image. And that becomes easier when we stop fighting it and we give it up and we recognize it. So I explained to you one place where I struggle with this. I think one place where I've had a win is when it comes to politics. 
So before I came on staff at Stonebridge, I was a high school teacher at Lasseter High School. I taught history. I love it. But then the last few years, I started teaching AP government. I loved government class. I, so much that me and the other government, we wrote a book that we use in the class. We called it the Bible. Don't, sorry. Um, but it was basically, here's everything you could ask, answer about government and how it works. And if you, and if you really dug into the book, we put articles in there that proved the points. And we did all, it was like that thick. Kids loved it. That's sarcasm. But we had it all. And I found myself every night, I would watch the news. I would watch this news channel, and then I would compare it to the, the same story on this news channel. It's like they weren't even watching the same thing. And I would come in, and I would, swing, I would have this whole lecture on media bias and how it's trying to do this and that, and they're trying to sell you things. And there's this thing called infotainment where here's some information, but it's mostly entertainment. And I went in on all of this stuff, and I embraced all of it. And I got really active in a specific political party, and I hated the other one. The more I learned about it, the more I knew I was right and people who disagree with me, they were wrong. And I would every conversation, I was really good at telling them how they're wrong and how I'm right. And you should listen to me. Every conversation I had went from we could start talking about the Braves and I'm ending up on the presidential election. Everything about me was geared around this. And I just kept feeding this beast inside of me that ate it all up. All the information, all the time. And at one point, I remember praying, because I was praying for some other people to be enlightened as much as I was. I remember praying and asking the Lord, why am I so angry? What is wrong with me? I walked around with either the intention to offend or be offended. That was my whole interaction with everybody. And I carried that chip on my shoulder. Like, I would have got mad about carpet. I, it was this constant thing about being angry and being frustrated or crushing someone because you're not smart enough to grasp it the way I grasp it. And I was just mad all the time. Again, I asked the Lord, why am I so angry? And he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And I said, I pay taxes. I don't know what this means. He said, what are you a citizen of? Obviously, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. He said, no, no, what are you a citizen of? And I answered the same way, and we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And finally, it realized that what he was saying to me is, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God first. This other stuff is second. This other stuff goes away. This one lasts forever. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and all of your political stuff that you're going to argue about is irrelevant to who I am and what I'm doing. And so I prayed, and I was like, this is the guy. Like, I encouraged. I used to do a voting drive in my classroom. If you came in my room, you had to sign up to vote every year. And I went from the guy that did that the guy who stopped voting. What the Lord was asking me to give up was that. Because as long as I was invested in it, I was going to obsess over it. And this made me clear. This is about me. I'm not telling anybody here not to vote. This is specific to me 
and my situation and how I felt like the Lord was speaking to me. You and what you do is between you and the Lord. I just encourage you to explore it, whatever it happens to be. But what I realized, the things that were dividing me were my own interests in trying to make just even politics in the United States of America into my own image. And I was carrying everything with me about me, about me all the time. And what I brought to the table to most relationships was division. There was nothing perfectly united about any relationship that I had because I entered every relationship with a goal in mind. And that was to change you into what I felt like was right. Therefore, we're unified. But if you don't respond the right way, we are divided. And so that's my entire life. And so I just, I just kept praying and the Lord took it all away. I stopped watching the news. I stopped reading articles. I stopped voting in 2014 was the last time I, or two, yeah, 2014 was the last time I participated in an election. I stopped caring about that and recognizing citizenship in heaven is eternal and far more important. But I want you to hear this. This is not an anti-American and anti-voting message. Nothing at all. I'm as patriotic as the next person. I'm as invested as the next person. I would die for my country, but I will not sacrifice my soul for it. But the point is, all of those things, if we're not completely submitted to Jesus, then we will be divisive over things that don't really matter. The easiest one to pick on now is is mask. Wear one, don't wear one. This, that, who cares? Because that's not a kingdom value. A kingdom value is loving people, loving God, loving people, and completely giving up everything to follow Him. Because that's what it says. You cannot be my disciple if you don't give up everything and follow me. It's even our opinions on mask. It's even our opinions on whatever political thing that you want to bring up. And that was hard for me because those things were important. But the Lord completely ruined me and wrecked me out of that. And I'm thankful for it because what what happened is I, I wasn't angry anymore. I didn't get mad. I was able to develop an unoffendable spirit as opposed to one that is offended all the time. I can let somebody make fun of my bald head and not take it personally. I can engage in relationships with people who I used to never would have talked to. And as someone who values evangelism, I was, I was leaving people out of the kingdom because they weren't conforming into my image instead of conforming to the image of Jesus. And the great thing about this is it's measurable. We don't often have these things. And don't hear me, I'm not talking about any type of works-based salvation. What I'm talking about are results-based relationships. Because when we are submitted to the Lord, what comes out of us when we're squeezed is Him. The fruits of the Spirit are what come oozing out of us. When we're not submitted to the Lord, we start bleeding all of our mess on top of everybody. We start tearing people down. We start bullying people into into opinions that they probably don't need to have. But when we're connected, when we give up everything and we follow Him and we're perfectly united as a body of believers, fruits of the Spirit start coming out of our churches as well as out of us, and division is so far away from the church that nobody even knows anything about it. 
New churches pop up not as a place for people to leave one church and go to, but for a place for unbelievers to come into relationship with the Lord. See, the fruits of the Spirit are all the things to measure how close we are. If you're angry, we're missing something. Ask the Lord. If you're frustrated all the time, ask Him what you're trying to do in your own strength. If you have no self-control, ask Him where it is that you are trying to give all of the control to yourself instead of giving it over to Him. This morning, I just want to encourage you just to ask the Lord, where is it that I'm missing it? And then confess it. And then commit to submitting to Him. I'm going to pray and invite Steve up. Jesus, we are thankful for you. We're thankful that submitting to someone who goes to the cross and dies for us is so easy. When we recognize your great work, Lord, it's easy to say yes to submitting. It's hard in practice. And so, Lord, we, we acknowledge this morning that following you is hard, but it's also better. So help us, Lord, to pursue you. In your name we pray. Amen.